Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, CEO of Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and executive chairman of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Now, for many of us, this month marks the one-year anniversary of wrestling with COVID. Among other things, it's really forced us to question just what is work? Is it the output of our labor in kind of a classic uh, economic sense, or is it a place where we go to earn a paycheck? Is it measured by income, by hours, by artifacts, or maybe something else entirely? As a society, we've done more thinking about the nature of work this past year than we did in the previous century. We're going to continue exploring that theme today with a fascinating guest. Elaine Zelby is a product marketer and product manager turned investor with uh, some strong opinions about the future of work. She joined SignalFire at the end of 2018 and was recently promoted to partner. Congrats, Elaine. SignalFire is the amazing firm behind some truly exceptional companies like Class Dojo, Clubhouse, Grammarly, Horizon 3, full disclosure, I'm an investor, Lime, Transposit, and many more. Thanks to Ilya from SignalFire for the introduction to Elaine. And when Elaine isn't investing, she's a podcaster and a substacker where she writes the very entertaining Three Things blog. I could go on, but I'd rather let you get to know Elaine in her own words. Elaine, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you uh, share a little bit about your background? Thanks so much, Dan, and I'm really excited to be on with you today. My background is a little all over the place. I think I'm one of those people who gets excited about a lot of different things, and that led me in my career. I started my life as a biomechanical engineer, actually. I went to undergrad and grad school at Stanford, and I thought I was going to build medical devices. And pretty quickly after I graduated, I realized how slow everything in hardware is, let alone FDA-regulated hardware. So I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And I always knew I wanted to start a company, but I was a little bit too risk averse. So I ended up joining an enterprise software company called Capriza as one of the first employees. I stayed there for five years and I had the benefit of helping to build out all the go-to-market functions. Pretty quickly after I joined, we ended up getting funding from Andreessen Horowitz, Charles River Ventures, some other tier one VCs in San Francisco. So that was my first entree and taste into the world of venture. Fast forward after those five years, I went to Slack when Slack was launching an enterprise product to lead their enterprise product marketing initiatives. And at the same time, between my last few years at Capriza and the Slack tenure, I also started a side hustle doing growth marketing for seed and series A companies. And this gave me an introduction to nearly 30 companies across a ton of different industries, different business models, and a ton of founders. And I found that that was so much fun for me. I love to learn and I love to figure out problems from a first principles perspective. So through that consulting work, I ended up joining SignalFire as an advisor, where I started working with some of their portfolio companies on the growth and go-to-market side. I got to know SignalFire and they got to know me and I realized how different a VC firm SignalFire really was. And after a few years of advising, they asked if I had ever thought of investing. And as you mentioned in late 2018, I joined full-time on the investment team. And I still spend about 30% of my time doing growth and go-to-market programs for the portfolio. One of the things that strikes me as unique about SignalFire is that unlike about any other VC I've come across, the adjective kind is typically used to describe the single fire investment and team culture. What does that mean to you? 
First, I love that word and I love that that's how people describe us because it feels so true and so authentic. You know, when I think about Signal Fire, we always make a few jokes. One is that most VCs play tennis and we play soccer. And what we mean by that is we're incredibly team oriented, incredibly collaborative. We, you know, we look at deals as a team, we invest as a team, we're not sharp elbowed and we really think of ourselves as a family and a community. And that, you know, essentially reflects across all areas of working with entrepreneurs, working with other investors and hopefully with our founders. So, you know, I think for us, it's just embodying go above and beyond, you know, technically we're in the services business. Can we go above and beyond to do things because it's the right thing to do and because it's going to help our portfolio or help the ecosystem? And I think we always look at it from a lens like that. And I, I'm glad that it reflects this kind. Well, it's a gratuitous plug right at the top of the show, but one that is well-earned, well-deserved. So you podcast about unsexy markets, unsexy technologies. So I want you to tell our audience, what's the next unsexy market that is ready to be transformed by maybe some sexy technology? So I find the unsexy niches to just be unbelievably fascinating. I also find the people building in them to be the most unique and interesting individuals because they have knowledge and know about something that oftentimes we've never even heard of or don't even know exists. And they're usually incredibly deep, have spent a lot of time in that sector. And to me, it's just completely opening my eyes to something that I, I was unaware of. So whether it's things like scrap metal marketplaces or creating new ways of light to help affect your mood and your behavior and how you think and how you act to automating H2A visas for farm labor. I think when you start drilling into all these areas of life that we take for granted, there are so many ways that technology still has not pervaded most areas that are not just squared on the middle of tech. And I think being in San Francisco, we get caught up a little bit in our lives being so driven by tech, both consumer tech and B2B enterprise tech. But when you think about things like food, when you think about things like materials, farming, you know, just all the things that you know make the world go round, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. So, you know, one of the more recent ones I had on the podcast is a company called CISO, which is really helping to automate a lot of the processes around creating uh, the process for farm labor. So getting migrant workers every year, make sure that you have all the paperwork in order and submitted to the government. There's a lot of stuff that happens there that farmers are just not equipped to do. So applying some technology to that really just moves it mountains. I listened to that and it was a great discussion. Please everyone go out and subscribe to uh, Unsexy by Elaine, second gratuitous plug. And uh, we're just getting started. <laughs> Dan, you're the best, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, your, uh, I'm your PR team. There's a disturbing trend. Last year, funding for female founders hit a three-year low in 2020. Um, I don't know if that's attributable to the pandemic or what caused that, but it is, disturbing on multiple levels that we've had a hard time breaking that kind of persistent trend. What do you think is the kind of enduring impact of the inequity in founder funding on the innovation economy? Yeah, and this is, you're right, this is a very disturbing statistic uh, because we were making great strides. And I'm very active in the all raise community, which is really helping to empower female founders, female funders, and female executives. And, you know, I think when you look at the statistics in general of what happened in 2020, women were hit way harder than men in terms of dropping out of the workforce, having a lot of the burden of childcare and education and all the things that the pandemic caused falling on them. And I think that partially affected the number of women who were starting companies. But 
to me, it's not just women being funded or women being the funders. I think any minority or any, uh, you know, any underrepresented group that is not now kind of gaining traction in that is just going to have trickle down effects in terms of how we, you know, how we build technology and who we build technology for, which then just increases the gap between the haves, the have nots, increases the gap between the majority and the minority. And I think that ultimately is just going to get exacerbated. So my hope is that after we hopefully have the vaccines rolled out and things start to turn into, you know, I don't think normal, but something that does not look like this. I'm really hoping that we can start to reverse that trend. But I think people are getting louder about it. I uh, recently actually was looking at a company in the recruiting space. And I talked to four of their customers doing diligence and four out of four said their number one priority for 2021 was diversity and inclusion initiatives. And at least I felt like having that come from a top-down perspective at companies large and small. I talked to a company that was in the many thousands of employees all the way down to in the tens. They all had the same number one, two or three priority of diversity and inclusion. So hopefully that will trickle down to, to the funding and the founding of companies. We had a fascinating discussion a few months back now with Deborah Hannes, who's the founder of Sparrow. And they specifically are looking at, it's a SaaS service to improve access to maternity leave or leaves of the absence in general, but to try to um, kind of disambiguate the process that it turns out, I learned from Deborah, um, often leads to women in the workplace feeling intimidated by asking for the amount of time they deserve. Perpetual cycle, keeps being reinforced by some entrenched policies. And I, again, I think that's one example of something where we wouldn't think that the way that we request maternity or paternity leave is biased, but that it, it turns out that's one of the many things that introduces these patterns. On, on that point, I have long said that until there is mandatory and equal maternity and paternity leave, we're never going to have equality in the workplace. And even if your policy is such that let's say you're offering three months or four months for women and for men, the women might take it and the men don't. And immediately now you're setting up this inequality where when you have a female who is going to have a child, you immediately expect them to drop out of your company for a while. And that creates a gap. When you see a man whose wife might be pregnant, you don't have that same reaction. And to me, until we can create, <clears throat> excuse me, a place where it is forced to take the exact same amount of time off, then we'll start treating people equally. So I would love to see that start to happen at more companies. Spot on. Now, talking about unsexy projects. So you've, uh, you developed this kind of opus of, uh, of SaaS tools for startups, the, the, the startup SaaS bundle. Tell us about it. What, what inspired you? So if you read my newsletter, three things, you'll know that I am the kind of person who is just constantly ideating on startup ideas. I see opportunities pretty much everywhere. You know, when I'm walking, when I'm showering, when I'm sleeping, I just come up with things that I wish existed or I feel somebody should build based off of me seeing so many startups. And one of the things that become abundantly clear is that for the average Cedar Series A company, these are companies sub 50 people, very small companies. They have between 30 and 40 different SaaS tools. I mean, that is insane. My husband recently started a company. He's a seed founder. He already is in the dozens and you know has three employees. So I started realizing that A, we've gone to this explosion of the proliferation of SaaS to the point where we're breaking down things that used to be 
you know, part of a monolith, part of a larger system into even more and more point solutions. And when I look at what people need, ultimately there's kind of the 80-20 rule where 80% of the functionality is all anybody needs, but that extra 20% is what they sell on. So my thought is, can we not go and take the, you know, let's call it 10 to 20 products that we know every company is going to need and bundle them together? And I think there's two ways to go about doing this. You can A, acquire some of these companies. So some of the more long tail where it's a CRM that you know has 80% of the functionality of Salesforce, but has very little adoption and the technology is good enough. Can we acquire that and bundle it in? Or you go and build it because some of the stuff is actually not that hard to build and commoditize. Some of it is very hard, but I think offering a startup bundle. And I think the cool thing about this is, you know, exactly the point in time where you can catch a founder. So after you raise that first round of funding, that is a clear inflection point where you're going to have to start buying SaaS. And you also now have money to buy it. When you capture somebody right there, you're not trying to capture them at a very specific point of when they might need marketing automation or when they might need a project management tool. So the idea here is, can you create a bundle? It would take a long time to build, but I think uh, that for most startup founders, that would be quite sufficient for a very long time of the company. Yeah, I completely agree. That bundle has grown a disturbing amount over time. It used to just be Salesforce. That was the uh, that was the original startup tax. Uh, well, it used to be an ERP, which was either SAP or okay. Oracle. <laughs> and so I, my joke always was bring back SAP. And I know it, I'm totally joking when I actually say that, but the underlying concept is what was great about a company like SAP and their ERP system was you bought one piece of software. You had one vendor to manage. You had one contract. You had one bill and it had what you needed. And now you have 30 different vendors with 30 different bills and 30 UIs and 30 logins and all the things that come with that. Uh, so despite the proliferation in the number of tools in the SaaS bundle, tell us about one that's missing. What's, what's in the gap that uh, ne needs to be added to the bundle, maybe perhaps related to remote work or new, new patterns in work, but what, what do you see that, that needs to happen? So the, the tool that I think is missing right now is something on the documentation side. So when I started researching remote work, which was well before the pandemic started, one thing was very consistent about all companies that were remote first, whereas everything else was nuanced. The one thing that was consistent was they all began with a culture of documentation from very early on. And co-located companies do not do this and are historically horrible at documenting, which is why they rely on being in one location, having an open office plan, grabbing people and going into a conference room and whiteboarding. So the idea here is if humans are lazy by nature and are not good at documentation, can we use technology to help automate some of that process? And on top of that, once you start documenting a bunch of stuff, then you run into the knowledge management problem. So can you apply an algorithm similar to how Google PageRank works, where you start uh, understanding when people search a query, what are they clicking on and surface those higher? Uh, I think there's an opportunity to build almost a self-amending knowledge management repository based off of this automated documentation platform. So I think there's something there. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I'm definitely not the right person to build it. But ultimately, I think that most companies today will be hybrid in the future if they weren't already, meaning that some employees will be in offices, some will not. You'll have satellite offices in different locations. And because people are not all together, I really do believe that documentation is going to become one of the biggest challenges, but also opportunities in the startup world. When we have the founder of that company on this podcast, they'll send them to you to get funded. Please do. <laughs> Please do. Somebody build it. So on the theme of uh, the, the future of work, what do you 
think is something that will be routine in the workplace, call it in 2025, that today might seem like science fiction? It's funny that I'm going to say this because I'm not a gamer. I'm as far away from gaming as you can possibly imagine. But I do believe that this concept of spatial web and spatial um, interaction will start to take over. And the idea here is that you're going to be interacting on video, but it's going to feel like you're in a world, in a room, in a space. And that space is going to contain a combination of things like documents that you can collaborate on, you know, whiteboards, potentially more fun activities, water cooler, coffee chats, things like that. But I think you're going to see stuff that looks a little bit like Roblox or Minecraft start to now emerge in the enterprise world and become a lot more uh, prolific. And I think right now there are a bunch of companies very early that are trying to tackle this. And I think we're going to start to see it be a little bit more um, enterpriseified, if that makes sense, because right now it still feels a little consumery. Says the mechanical engineer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we're going to Robloxify the enterprise. I love it. One of the populations of workers that I feel like has been disproportionately disadvantaged by the pandemic is younger workers who, again, I think have historically relied on face-to-face -face interaction, networking at events, all the things that have been taken away from us. What's your advice for that younger cohort of employees new to the workplace to be able to establish themselves, maybe, you know, I don't know about for the, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, where they won't have the benefits of the kind of networking that maybe you and I have had access to? So I guess I'm going to take almost the counter argument in that I think that young employees are going to go back to cities and back to offices. I believe that those people just from a learning opportunity, from a networking opportunity, you know, a significant portion of people today find their significant others at work as well. So I think there's that dating opportunity. I believe... <clears throat> that they're still going to be in offices. I do think this gives people an opportunity though to take advantage of the fact that the internet has now opened it up so that proximity does not matter anymore. It is all about finding your tribe. And I think that that's an amazing thing. Historically, the people that you interacted with, it was very serendipitous. It was the people you grew up with, the people you went to school with, the people you live next to, or the people you worked with. And now there's an opportunity to say, no, I care about this esoteric niche thing. And I'm going to go find the people, no matter where they are, they could be in India, Romania, Argentina, and find those people. And so I do think we're seeing, you know, look, Gen Z is 100% there already, they spend their time on the internet. And I think for people, it also gives them the opportunity to really focus on outside of work, what do they care about? What hobbies do they want to engage in? What community activities do they want to engage in? And hopefully people will maintain that work life balance where they can have something that they truly care about and brings them joy, and also brings them social interaction outside of just the workplace. Because I think historically, especially for people in startups, you work so many hours that your entire life is subsumed by work and the people that are at work. So you're an urbanite. The um, popular press is convinced that the end of Silicon Valley is near because of the uh, mass exodus to Miami and uh, you know every place other than the Bay Area. And within the Bay Area, every place other than San Francisco. Uh, agree or disagree? I disagree. I, I, and I'll give you one real reason why. Anecdotally, I think there's been this new, I don't know what you want to call it, but a pleasantry at the beginning of a Zoom call is, where in the world are you today? And I will say seven, maybe out of 10 of my calls are with people in San Francisco. So 
I think we as Signal Fire historically had a very San Francisco or potentially New York East Coast view of the, the startup ecosystem. But that said, still the vast majority of our portfolio companies are in San Francisco. The vast majority of founders I'm talking to are here if they weren't based somewhere else already. I've not heard of a lot of people who have permanently relocated. I think some people are temporarily with family or temporarily you know, trying out a different place, but I still am long San Francisco and I will see what happens. Do, do you have to disclose that you're on a Mayor London Breed's payroll? <laughs> no, actually, there's been this whole campaign now to have Chamath Palihapitiya yeah. run for mayor. And I think uh, I think he could be a great choice. I think he might be running for governor instead. He set his sights higher. Oh, there you go. Even better. But, Take all of California. That's right. Exactly. Uh, that and SPACs seem to be uh, his, his areas of specialty. Tell us about the most exciting pitch you recently heard. So I think for this, just because, you know, I don't want to disclose information people don't want to know, I'll, I can talk about the most recent investment that uh, I've made, which is in a company called Testbox. And what Testbox is doing is they figured out how to productize something that was never productizable before, which is the software selection and purchasing process. So when you are looking for, let's say, a customer support platform, historically, you go to three or four vendors, you would end up getting on sales calls, they would at some point bring in a sales engineer to build you a custom demo and show you what it looks like. And then you'd have to make a decision. Oftentimes you're oversold, underdelivered. It involves professional services to customize. And what Testbox enables you to do is enter information about your company, the size, the industry, things like that. It then spins up production instances side by side of all the tools you should be testing with synthetic data customized to your company. And you can then go and actually play in these sandbox production environments and figure out what workflows work for you. It's apples to apples comparison. And then you can purchase directly from there. So uh, still very early, but I'm very excited about this one. Going back to the idea of the SaaS bundle for every one of the 30 tools that you select, you tend to evaluate three to five, maybe. So I, I, I get it. That's exactly. a good, good, good thesis. And if you think about it, millennials and Gen Z who are now, well, let's squarely say millennials are now in the positions where they're buying software and millennials do not want to talk to salespeople. They don't want to talk to anybody. And so being able to self-serve, I think really fills that need. And roll back the clock to your days at say Capriza or Slack. What's one lesson that you've learned as an investor that you wish you would have known when you were an operator? You know, one thing that became very clear very quickly uh, as an investor that I just had no idea about as an operator is how much venture capital has still some ability to king make a company. And, you know, I think when you're an operator, you believe that the best products will win and the team that works the hardest and does right by their customers and builds the greatest technology is gonna win. And ultimately, I've just seen that not to be true. It is the best distribution, it is the best execution, and oftentimes it requires a lot of money. And so I've seen the ability for companies to get a tremendous amount of funding and help on the recruiting side, help on the scaling side from their venture capital partners, which really allows them to springboard ahead. And I just had no idea that existed before I got on the side of the table. We're bad out of time, but I got to get in one last question. Your quarantine hobby, how have you gotten through the past, well, 12, 12 plus months? I've had a few. So at the beginning of the quarantine, I love making stuff still. I have a, a bunch of woodworking, metal smithing, things like that. But I got into resin 
So I started making a bunch of resin jewelry. Uh, my husband is very into 3D printing. So we 3D printed a bunch of enclosures to make things like necklaces and rings and things like that. And I played with a bunch of mixed media and did a, a lot of resin. So that was a fun new hobby. Do you have an Etsy store? I don't. I don't. I don't actually sell any of it. Just, just playing. I think the other hobby was the newsletter. I started that at the beginning of the pandemic. And honestly, it has just been a blast. You know, I think a lot of people that get on the content treadmill don't sustain it. And mostly because it feels like work. And for me, writing once a week, it just feels like fun. So I think I've hit on something that's a, something very sustainable for me. Fantastic. Well, there you go. Subscribe to Elaine's Substack. Listen to Unsexy, her podcast. Pitch your startup to a signal fire. And uh, we've run out of things to promote that Elaine works on. So uh, <laughs> I think that must mean that uh, it's time for us to say goodbye. Elaine, such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Dan. This has been awesome. Really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone listening. And again, thanks to Ilya from Signal Fire for the uh, kind intro to Elaine. This is Dan Turchin, your host of AI and the Future of Work, signing off for this week, but we'll be back next week with another fascinating guest.